Hello and welcome to Science Matters, the podcast of the Georgia Tech College of Sciences. I'm Renee San Miguel. This is when I know I'm helpless. My hands are down there on the bed. I can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. I can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. I'm as dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. Well, now you know, Wilma. Now you have an idea of what it is. I guess you don't know what to say. It's all right. Go on home. Go away like your family said. I know what to say, Homer. I love you. And I'm never going to leave you. Never. We're not crying. You're crying. That is a key emotional scene from the 1946 Best Picture winner, The Best Years of Our Lives. The actor playing the returning World War II veteran is Harold Russell, a real-life vet who lost his hands in a Navy training accident. After all these decades, the movie remains one of the most vivid cinematic depictions of life after war for those who fought, and especially for those who came home forever changed. We're going to put this device on you that is going to sort of make you feel like uh, you have to get used to wearing a prosthetic limb. Another thing that hasn't changed after all these years and all the scientific knowledge gained in that time is that those who suffer the loss of a limb still have to learn how to adapt. Lewis Wheaton, associate professor in the School of Biological Sciences, wants to know more about how people make those adjustments to major changes in their motor skills. If he learns more, he may be able to make it easier to adapt. That's why he's here working with research team members in the Cognitive Motor Control Lab, which he leads. And around your other arm, we're going to give you the harness that actually helps you control uh, the device. So I'll let you try to figure out exactly how to open and close it. One of his students is trying on a right-handed plastic hook that's controlled mostly by the left shoulder, thanks to cables and pulleys. She's doing it to get some idea of what life is like for an amputee. The student, Christina Giddens, then tries to throw Velcro balls at a target with the artificial limb. You looked like you had to like use more muscle to, to get yeah, there. Yeah, it's definitely an adjustment. I, I would think so. Can I try that? Then it's my turn to fit my right arm in the device. This type of design is, is really the entry-level prosthesis that most people get. It's body-powered, so it's a harness that yeah. controls the opening and the closing with this cable support. After a rough start, I finally managed to throw some Velcro balls on the target. Then I'm asked to unlock a lock, pull out the key, and then lock things back up. So unlock Test. it. And I have to yank that bad boy out of there? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. It's not coming. Finally, I get my right hand back. Imagine the frustration of a new amputee trying what came naturally before, only to find those simple tasks are now struggles. Wheaton's research hopes to help smooth out those struggles. Whether through traumatic injuries resulting in the loss of a limb, or through strokes or other brain injuries that can take a patient back to square one, Wheaton is out to better understand the neurological processes involved so that those people can win back their independence. He's also learning more about what happens in our brains when we intend to do something and what happens when we act on those intentions. 
So the goal of the research of my lab really is to understand the interaction between these two domains that are usually thought of as separate, right? Mm -hmm. One is cognition, one is motor control, and to understand how those two subdomains are so uh, important and key to unlocking uh, and, and helping to support um, the needs of people and, and how people think, how people function, how people behave, mm. whether they are you know people that are perfectly healthy and have sound limbs and on and on and on, all the way to people with neural injury and peripheral injuries. Um, how those two subdomains function together as a, as a unique entity uh, is a critical concern to us. Lieutenant Dine. Hello, Forrest. You got new legs. New legs? Yeah, I got new legs. Custom made. Titanium alloy. It's what they use on the space shuttle. Magic legs. Forrest Gump may have thought Lieutenant Dan's legs were magic. For Wheaton, the sorcery happens in the mind-body connection. Earlier, he said his lab's mission was to learn everything about cognition and motor control. Cognition implies thought or intent. Motor control is the action. Wheaton peels away other layers of that connection. For me, I think of it as kind of an intersection of three domains, really. There is, there is the biological aspect of it because you're dealing, at least in my world, we're dealing with people and, and understanding you know, all these um, biological aspects of humans. There's the engineering side, particularly when it comes to prosthetics, mm -hmm. that I'm very intrigued about. But then there's the psychology side as well, mm -hmm. where you're kind of pulling in, okay, what's motivating people to move and how they move? An example that I always give my students is the idea of doing something as simple as reaching for a coffee mug. If you reach for a coffee mug, um, you will likely reach to that mug differently depending on why you're reaching for it. If you're just reaching to move a mug around, you're going to grab it from the top. You're not going to care because your goal is not to drink from yeah. it. Your goal is just to move it around or something. Yeah. So I'm not going to grab it by the handle. You're not, yeah, exactly. But if your goal is to drink it, you're pretty much always either going to grab it by the handle or you're going to grab it by the side. Mm -hmm. That's just how you do. Why do you do that? Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one of the things that we're, we're continually curious about. What's the one surprising thing you have found in your research as to how people, or better yet, our brains, how we adapt to these challenges? What's the one thing that's just blown you away? I think of almost two things, really, that are equally impressive to me. Um, one is the creativity of people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so cool to have people in our studies that are doing daily activities or trying to get them to either behave in daily circumstances or trying to judge behavioral things that they're observing and the very different impressions they take away from it mm. uh, or the very different strategies they take to move something around. It's really beautiful and it, it speaks to this sort of um, 
while there's a common humanity there, it speaks to these little differences that we all have in how we approach something. The other thing that is captivating, and this is something that's sort of being, is emerging in the research of the lab, is the power of something as simple as the visual system. Mm. So we've looked at a lot of things from the perspective of how is the brain changing if we look at condition A versus condition B. Mm. We've looked at how is the body moving different when we move in condition A versus condition B. But one of the things that we kind of tripped on, and this was one of my grad students who was curious about this question, and we said, well, let's let's look at what the eyes are doing. there's never been a mystery about the fact that the eyes seemingly um, guide behavior. They they guide our intent. They you know you tend to look at what you want to grab, sure. things like that. But we started to realize that the visual strategies that people employ when they're trying to solve problems are so unique, and they differ depending on who you are. If you're a younger person versus an older person, if you're somebody um, that does not have amputation versus somebody that does have an amputation, whether or not you have somebody with a stroke that is an acute phase versus somebody in a chronic phase, mm-hmm. you're using the visual system to help guide behavior and you're always doing it differently. Well, the cool part about that is the eyes aren't just working by themselves. They're also working in coordination with the brain. So for some reason, the brain is picking up on differences, they're helping to align visual system to look for differences, perhaps implicitly, mm-hmm. in strategies and things like that to help movement. And then you're actually using that information yeah. <laughs> to help guide movement. And it's, it's been so beautiful to see that. Go ahead and look straight ahead. Follow my finger. I just want to make sure that all pupil cameras are detecting your pupils regardless of where your head position is. The voice belongs to Crystal Topping, a doctoral candidate in Wheaton's lab. Thanks to the use of tiny cameras on special glasses, Topping, Wheaton, and other team members are focusing on eye tracking as a way to help make the rehabilitation process more efficient. They study what test subjects look at when watching someone with both upper limbs perform a task versus someone using an artificial limb. Those who watch the person with the device are looking more at the parts of the body that power that device. The left upper body, for example, for someone using a right-handed artificial limb. That, that's part of one of the approaches we tend to take in the lab is looking at, you know, there are people that come in all the time and they either feel as though they can't do something or they feel as though, or they've adapted to doing it in a way that is so different. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is perhaps different in a bad way. It's not as efficient. Uh, right, yeah. It's what we refer to generally as some of this maladaptive, right? We picked up a maladaptive behavior to compensate for this limitation. And, it, you know, part of that comes back to the creativity that people individually have. Yeah, yeah. But there's also that challenge of getting people to understand that they may have a desire to do something, so to speak, in their mind. Mm-hmm. But they can figure out a way to make it happen, right? And so that's getting from that, you know, having that the intent of here's what I'd love to do to that action where you're like, all right, now I can do it. And here's exactly how I would do it. And mm-hmm. do it in not only in a reproducible way, 
but in a way that won't cause more harm down the line. Let's dig deeper into the intent versus action process within our brains. Wheaton remembers the first time he saw this play out. It was during his third year of graduate studies. I saw this particular patient who had a stroke, a very small stroke, in um, the left side of the brain, the parietal lobe. Uh, had really no deficits to speak of resulting from the stroke, huh. except one problem. One singular problem. When we asked her to do various gestures with her hands, mm-hmm. um, particularly communicative gestures, so something like waving goodbye, show me how you'd wave goodbye, show me a peace sign, things like that, she could describe it, she could say when she would do it, mm-hmm. she couldn't do it. She could raise her hand, but she couldn't make her hand move in the way that she needed to make it move. She could explain for like a peace sign, for example, um, she could explain that she needed to move her thumb down to her palm and that she needed to move her, you know, her ring finger and her small finger down to leave the the first and the middle Mm -hmm. finger up. She could describe, but she couldn't do it. That, to me, really captured the difference between intent and action. Um, That particular deficit is referred to as apraxia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, ver- a version of apraxia called idiomotor apraxia, where you struggle making these gestures, though you know what you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, but we see this, and it's not necessarily apraxia, but we see similar things played out in a lot of cases. Um, people with upper limb loss that are dealing with prostheses, yeah. they know they want to pick up the mug. They can't quite figure out the strategy to use to pick up the mug with the device. So yeah. they just use their sound limb if they have a unilateral okay. limb loss. Okay. Um, they just default to that in some cases. Uh, some people will try different strategies, but it can be hard. It can yeah. be difficult. Um, so how to get people maybe a bit better on that continuum saying, here's what I want to do and here's how I'm going to do it. Uh, very similar to how, you know, probably most people can. You know, if you ask yeah. people to wave goodbye, they can wave goodbye perfectly sure. fine. Yeah. Um, but they're seeing those people struggle with something like that. It is, is humbling and it's really remarkable to think about what's the disconnection yeah. between those two systems um, that that keeps the cognitive perhaps disconnected from the motor that keeps yeah. the the intent separate from the action gotcha. uh, that that's what's really really an elegant uh, problem in, in neuroscience what about just natural aging no mm-hmm. injury of any kind no mm-hmm. strokes but people take care of themselves but the years will will have an impact on yeah. that that connection right tell me about what you're learning regarding the aging process and how it impacts impacts motor control. Yeah, the aging is really interesting. So a lot of people um, that I know that study certain certain of these pathologies, things like stroke, mm-hmm. um, or some of the degenerative diseases will often comment uh, anecdotally, you know, we're, we're seeing some things, but we still don't totally know the the substrate of aging and how that relates to this. So, for example, in stroke, um, most of the population that you're studying tends to be a little older. Um, That's unfortunately not all that uncommon, 
But then it makes you think, is what you're seeing augmented by the fact of the aging process? Is the aging process somehow being maybe accelerated because of the neuropathology that you're having? So there are questions really that revolve around that. We do see, though, in some of our work, and this is perhaps a bit more anecdotal, but we do see some um, unique differences in a lot of people that are older versus younger, particularly amongst our amputation population. Does um, your research help pave the way for maybe better prosthetics? I mean, the ones that actually maybe in the future, or maybe it's around right now, mm-hmm. they actually can plug into your to your nerve right. system, nervous right. system. Right. Absolutely. I think, you know, when we think about the training-based approach, I tend to think of myself as um, not necessarily caring what type of device it is right now, mm-hmm. right? Take any device. How do you still train people on how to use it? Whatever it is, there's going to be a learning curve. Yeah. I would love to be able to take a lot of different devices and suggest, is there a way perhaps with an array of devices that we can develop presently, even right now, whether or not they're available in the market is a separate question, but with the devices we have right now, is there a way that we could perhaps say, you know, based on your physiology, based on your training responses, this is the device that's right for you, right? Um, or and additionally, I should say, based on the work that we're seeing here with motor adaptation and motor learning with this type of device, this suggests that this type of device or this feature of the device is not beneficial, that we need to perhaps go different strategies. Yeah. There, There's the engineering side where you could easily just say, well, we'll just rebuild and yeah. you know redevelop, which is great, which is genius, I think. But there's also the understanding of, okay, how would the person use it? How can the person use it? Can the person use it? And if they can't, no matter how cool it is, maybe we need to pull back on that and take some different approaches. Mm -hmm. And so that's where hopefully, you know, this work, looking at these motor learning questions with amputation in particular can help to improve device design, but also maybe help with device selection uh, down the line. I thank Lewis Wheaton, Associate Professor in the School of Biological Sciences and Director of the Cognitive Motor Control Lab for sharing his research with us. Also thanks to Samuel Goldwyn Productions, RKO Radio Pictures, and Paramount Pictures. Cyan Joe, a former research associate with the School of Psychology, composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to Science Matters. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. This is Science Matters the podcast of the Georgia Tech College of Sciences. I'm Renee San Miguel. Thank you for listening.